Well, good morning. Well, that's loud. <laughs> they forgot about my voice from last Sunday. <laughs> so, um, thank you all for coming out. Uh, just a quick overview of what we're going to try to uh, present uh, to you and to accomplish this morning. Um, uh, I'm going to speak a couple of times right now on the text of the Old Testament, that is the, uh, uh, the, the transmission, how we ended up with the wording of the Bible, okay? Uh, and then my, my friend and colleague, Peter Gurry, is going to tell you how we have the New Testament's text and wording, okay? And then at the end, the third session, we're going to kind of zoom a little bit further out, and we're going to ask how we have the books that are in this Bible, okay? Uh, I'm holding up a, an ESV uh, translation, 66 books. Uh, how is it that we have this Bible uh, in our possession? Clear? Okay. All right. Good. So uh, we're just going to do one of these, and we'll move the slides forward, maybe. There it is, magically, okay. So I, I want to address a problem that is uh, mainly found in the academy, and uh, this problem is succinctly put here by uh, Michael Law when he says this, to be candid, before the Bible, there was no Bible. Before the beginning of the second century CE, or AD, there were Jewish scriptures whose forms were still in flux. And many scriptures were excluded in the finalization of the Hebrew Bible. Prior to the second century, there was no way of knowing which scriptural books would be included within the collection and which would be left out. Nor was there any way of knowing how the final version of the individual books would appear. He continues a little bit later in this book and says this, We have seen repeatedly that the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, that the Septuagint, and especially the Dead Sea Scrolls, offer proof that the Hebrew Bible was not fixed before the second century CE, and perhaps more surprisingly, that many readers and users of scriptural texts before then were not bothered about it. All right. <clears throat> On the spot. So, um... Question is, where does, where, does a, where does a researcher and an author get those kinds of conclusions? Upon what is it based? Okay. Well, it's based on this from the work of Emmanuel Tove going back to 2012. Tove classified all of the biblical manuscripts coming out of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, at Qumran. And uh, I've circled some numbers here over there to the right of the chart. What this chart is basically trying to show in Tobe's mind is that although a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, did agree with the Proto-Masoretic text, I'll explain what these versions are here in a moment, uh, a, a lot of manuscripts coming out of the Dead Sea Scrolls agreed with traditions, later traditions of the Proto-MT, the pre-Samaritan Pentateuch, and the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Over there, all the way to the right, there is some pretty high numbers, especially that 49% of texts that Tove describes as not aligned. And uh, an earlier figure from Tove, uh, after categorizing 57 such texts from Qumran, 
he winds up with about 39, 40% of the biblical Dead Sea Scrolls are non-aligned. Now, what's a non-aligned text? You could probably guess, right? It's a text that doesn't agree, right? It's, it's not in line, okay, with uh, other traditions. So at the bottom, I give a definition. A non-aligned text is defined by Tove as a text that is inconsistent in its agreement with the Masoretic text, Septuagint, and Samaritan Pentateuch, while preserving unique readings, that is, readings that are not found anywhere else. Thus, you see, Tove would argue that the Old Testament text is fluid. That is not standard, okay? That is, scribes can change the wording at will, and did, according to Emmanuel Tove, in 57 such texts, okay? So uh, that's what we're uh, up against here. So I'm, we're going to talk then how well preserved is the Hebrew Old Testament. Tov's analysis of the so-called non-aligned text leads many to believe that the Old Testament text was fluid before it was finally standardized in the early 2nd century AD. But is this picture accurate? There it is. So... Uh, I tend to lose a lot of people when I start to just use Masoretic text and Septuagint without defining these words, okay? So that's what this slide is for, okay? What's our evidence? And this is about as succinctly as I can put it on one PowerPoint slide. What's our evidence? Well, the Masoretic text, or MT, okay? This is a text that we can date somewhere between the 9th and 11th centuries A.D., it is the late Hebrew medieval manuscripts that come out of Galilee, or specifically Tiberias. And there are other witnesses to this text, like the Jewish Greek revisers of Theodosian, Aquila, and Symmachus. They worked from 40 AD to 150. Then there is the Syriac Peshitta from 150 to 200, right? These are obviously anticipating, right, this later Masoretic text. And then the, the Latin Vulgate of Jerome, we'll talk about Jerome a lot in here, uh, is dated to around 400 AD. These versions, you see, translated the Proto-Masoretic text. That is the Hebrew consonantal text without vowels. I know for us, that's like, wait, there's a language without vowels, right? <laughs> well, of course, they're always implied in the reading. But written down, there were only consonants until about the 8th, 9th century A.D., only consonants, okay? So, uh, but, but the fascinating thing is, the, the translations I just mentioned, hundreds of years before those vowel points are added, actually agree with those texts when the vowel points are added. Do you see that? In other words, they, they, they show the authenticity of that 9th to 11th century A.D. text. Okay, now, another witness, the Greek Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament between 280 B.C. and sometime completed in the first century B.C. Obviously, then, this would be done by numerous translators and at different times. It's not a monolithic translation. It's not like the NIV translation committee that sat down and used consistent principles across time or, or across the, uh, the corpus. It's not how the Septuagint works. More on that in a moment. Then there's the Samaritan Pentateuch. So this is the Samaritan version or revision of the Pentateuch. So uh, the Samaritans, as you know, had their worship center at Mount Gerizim, right? So in Deuteronomy 27, 
the, uh, the people were to pronounce curses on Mount Gerizim and blessings on Mount Ebal. Are you familiar with this story, Deuteronomy 27? Well, if you read the Samaritan Pentateuch, it's changed. The blessings now go on Gerizim and the curses go on Ebal. Well, why would you do that? Oh, oh, because you worship at Gerizim, right? So you don't want the curses going there, you see. <laughs> also, wherever the altar of the Pentateuch, wherever the altar is set up, it is set up on Mount Gerizim in the Samaritan Pentateuch, but not in the Masoretic text. This is, of course, the Samaritan woman, right, in John 4, right, where uh, she says, we believe that we worship God on our mountain, right, on this mountain. But you, Jesus, and the rest of the Jews, you believe, right, that you worship God in Jerusalem. Okay, so this woman knows her Samaritan Pentateuch really, really well, okay, Uh, even by John chapter 4. The last bit of evidence is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, these are the Hebrew manuscripts found in and around the Dead Sea uh, starting in 1947. Can you imagine that? That whole swath, all that discussion, not quite 100 years old yet, discovered in 1947. Uh, That's really radical. That's really new. But that actually shows that there's still a lot of time to analyze the evidence that came from these discoveries, you see. Things take time to process. So the earliest evidence we have of any biblical text comes from the the silver amulet of Ketef Hinnom, which is dated to the 6th, 5th century B.C. It seems to have some of the text of Numbers 6, 24 to 26, right? But it's a blessing, right? Whoever wears the amulet, may he or she be blessed by Yahweh, the warrior or helper, and the rebuker of evil. May Yahweh bless you, keep you. May Yahweh make his face shine upon you and grant you peace, right? So uh, that's the earliest piece of evidence dated to maybe around 600 uh, of any of the Old Testament. Some other manuscripts, very important These are manuscripts from the 3rd, 7th centuries. This is manuscripts that are in the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages. And we're going to talk about that second Exodus one, that Ashkar Gilson, uh, a little bit later. But notice how few there are. This is it from the 3rd to 7th, 8th centuries of the Hebrew Bible. This is it that I'm aware of. Uh, What you also need to be aware of is that not a lot of scholars talk about these either. They rarely make it into uh, manuals of textual criticism, but they actually are super important links to the state of the authenticity of the text of the Old Testament. Let's go to the next slide. Here's another list of manuscripts, the most important ones before 1100. Uh, We're going to talk about the Aleppo Codex and the Leningrad Codex. These were codices. Uh, dated to 925 and 1008, respectively. They include, or in the case of the Leningrad, included all of the Old Testament. Some of these manuscripts are uh, not not complete uh, Old Testaments, but still uh, preserve quite a bit of the text. Here's a picture of the Leningrad Codex. And um, what I can't show you in detail, because <laughs> I lack a pointer, is, uh, is that in this, in this picture... Uh, We're looking at Psalms 81 to 84, and uh, this is an elaborate text with full vowel points and and what we call accents or cantillation marks, Um, 
Uh, more on that in a moment, but I just want you to visualize uh, what this looks like. Here's another one, same exact page uh, from the Aleppo Codex of 925 AD. Let's keep rolling. So, whoops, sorry, back one more. There we go. Whoop, one more. There it is. Earliest evidence of the Masoretic text. Again, the Masoretic text is the base of our English translations, okay? It's the base. It is the text that our translations are based on. So the question is, if those manuscripts that I just showed you from 1008 and 925 AD are the Masoretic text, that doesn't sound very, very convincing, right? This doesn't sound like it's going to build a lot of confidence, right? Because these books right, in this Bible were written like in the Iron Age, like 1200 BC, or earlier in the case of Mosaic books, you see. So if our manuscripts are from 1000 AD, that's like a 2000 year, well, yeah, it's about a 2000 year period of time, right? That's a long time to not have a lot of manuscript evidence, right? Have I, have I shown you the problem yet? Okay, so, uh, <laughs> so, so, the, so what can you do in this situation uh, if you're trying to put together a case for the history of the Old Testament? Well, here's one way I've, I've gone about it and others have gone about it. What we're going to try to do is show that those manuscripts from the earliest period, or from the, from the 1000 AD period, actually have a rugged text history and rugged precursors in the earliest period of our evidence, okay? That's what we're going to try to show. And we're going to do that by looking at what's called the inner circle texts, texts copied from temple exemplars, okay? And then we're going to look at second circle texts from Qumran, texts copied from similar but, but not the exact same exemplar. And then third, in a, in a very unlikely source, there is this tradition called Kaige, which contains Greek translations and revisions of the Septuagint. And the interesting thing is that whoever did those, those translations and revisions, whoever did those used the Proto-Masoretic text, you see, at the same, uh, uh, the same text as the inner circle and second circle text. So my summary, to cut right to it, we're gonna, when we, we'll combine inner and second circles and the Kai Ge, and I'm going to show you what we come up with at the end. So the earliest evidence for the MT really comes in two sets. We've got the biblical scrolls from other sites around the Dead Sea. I don't know if you can see my map here, but Qumran is the site that always makes it into Newsweek and Time Magazine, right, and all that. But uh, there are some lesser-known sites, Wadi Mirabaat, the Wadi Sedeir, Nachal Hever, Nachal Se'alim, and finally, that fortress known as Masada there on the southwest side of the Dead Sea. All of these places have yielded evidence and manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament. Some 43 biblical texts from those places. And guess what? All of them attest the Masoretic text. Okay? Now, uh, a little history lesson. When did the Romans come into Jerusalem and destroy the temple? 70 AD. Wow, we got some really sharp folks in here. Then there was another little uh, skirmish, right? Known as the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, around 132, right? 132 AD. 
After that, right, the Jews are expelled from the land, right? Done. So, so all of our manuscripts have to be dated to really before the destruction of the temple, you see, 70 AD. There's not a whole lot of great scribal work happening after your whole center, your capital city is destroyed. Does that make sense? So, so these texts that we're talking about, uh, at the latest, can be dated to 100 AD, okay? Now, there's all kinds of reasons to date them earlier, which we'll talk about in a second, but, but I just wanted to give you that, that little kind of end point there. All of these manuscripts have to be dated to no later than 100. There's next the 225 or so biblical scrolls from Qumran, and uh, those uh, have a mixed text, as we'll see in a moment. So the text outside Qumran from Masada, Nahal, Hever, note how we're going to date those. Masada texts are usually dated between 50 and 30. The texts from the other sites are usually dated to somewhere between 20 and 115 at the absolute latest. All right, next slide. There we go. So if you compiled all the evidence from the inner circle texts, and again, these are fragmentary, right? They're not, they're not full, bo- full books or even full Bibles. Fragments of manuscripts from the inner circle text that reflect the Masoretic text pristinely. A spelling mistake here or there. I can't emphasize enough. And we're going to look at that in a little bit. Like at the Spelling mistakes. That's about it. Well, the books that we have evidence for are the ones you see on the screen here. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, Judges, Joshua, Judges, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12 prophets, Psalms, Daniel, and Ezra, Nehemiah, all attested amongst those 43 texts found at other sites around the Dead Sea. These these texts absolutely anticipate the Masoretic text, a thousand or so years before it came to be. Does that make sense? Okay. That's the key. Let's go to the next slide. Yeah, here's a great shot of Masada. On the bottom uh, right there, um, there's a structure there. I I believe that's where the synagogue was at Masada. And uh, so they found these manuscripts there. Let me show you what one of them looks like. Next slide. Here we go. So here's a a piece uh, known as Masada Psalms A, and it contains text from Psalms 81 to 85, Again, these are not evangelical fundamentalist scholars that are dating these things. Scholarship dates this text to around 25 B.C., okay? Um, As you saw, all texts from Masada uh, are dated to somewhere between uh, like 30 B.C. and maybe like, I forget what I had on the other side of the spectrum, maybe, what was that? Yeah, oh no, for Masada though, I think it was 50, 50 A.D., because, again, when the, when the uh, Romans went into Jerusalem, they also took out Masada soon after that, you see. So we date those, uh, the, the Masada texts, a little bit earlier than the, than the texts from the other sites. Okay, so let's go to the next slide. So uh, Qumran, then. Here's a shot of the caves. Beautiful. Next spot. There we go. When you combine second circle texts from Qumran. So, again, second circle are not quite as pristinely anticipating the Masoretic text. There are a few more types of errors other than spelling, okay, in those texts. 
But, but still, almost all scholars see these texts as anticipating the Masoretic text that our English translation is based on. See that? Okay. So when you add the second circle text, you get a lot of overlap, but then the ones with asterisks show the uh, books that were not on the first list. So you can now add the books of Samuel, Kings, Job, Proverbs, and Ruth, all attesting the earliest, or a part of our earliest evidence attesting the Masoretic text some thousand years before our major manuscripts surface. And then that Kaige tradition, these Greek translations, Greek revisions, uh, when you add those in, you start to get other smaller books like Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Ruth, and so on. All of these texts exhibit and attest the Masoretic text, though in Greek, though. In fact, let's look at one. So um, here is some fragments from the cave of Nachal Hever of the famous Minor Prophet Scroll, the Twelve Prophets. And uh, I circled there, and the, I don't know if you can see it on that, on that picture to the left. There, that's actually the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, in archaic Hebrew letters. But it's an otherwise Greek manuscript, you see. So I, I show this because most scholars point to evidence like that to show just how strictly these Greek translators were adhering to the Hebrew text that they were translating, do you see? So much so that when they got to Yod, Hey, Wow, Hey, they actually transmit that in the Proto-Hebrew script, everywhere it comes up, you see. And again, this translation or revision of the 12 prophets attests the Proto-Masoretic text some thousand years before the Aleppo and the Leningrad Codex appears. Okay, let's go to the next. So in a summary, if you combine those three pieces of evidence, inner, second inner and second circles, and the Kaigag Greek tradition, you actually have all 22 books of the Old Testament, uh, according to the Jewish reckoning, 22 books uh, in evidence. Does that make sense? So... Um, so, so what, what it looks like then is that we actually have, before the time of Jesus, the text down to the wording, before uh, the, the big manuscripts appear a thousand years later, we already have evidence of that text. And again, our evidence doesn't go back that far. I showed you Hetef Hinnom, right? Maybe 600 BC, Numbers 6, 24 and 25. That's the... That's the earliest scrap of evidence we have of the Old Testament, okay? When the evidence actually starts to appear, usually dated between 250 and, say, 75 AD, 250 BC and 75 AD, the Masoretic text tradition is attested well. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Let's see here. I've got another. Well, I've got some time. Good. Two hours. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. So, so evaluating the Masoretic text vis-a-vis -vis the evidence. So what I want to show uh, over the next series of slides is that uh, in this period that we've been talking about, 250 BC 
to 100 AD, okay, roughly. The Jews were copying their scriptures in a very conservative way and also in what we might describe as a free way, okay? Um, and then we're going to actually come back to that last question about what about the non-aligned texts, okay? So, but this is a really important point. Uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like the quotes from Michael Law earlier are totally off base, okay? There is evidence of what we're going to call free copying, okay? I think what happens in today's discussion, though, is that the evidence of conservative copying is left out. Do you see that? What I want to do this morning is try to be as upfront and honest with you about both tendencies happening uh, alongside of one another. That is a, a tendency to, to get every character, every letter right. And then another tendency where you might see what is known as some freer copying or less conservative copying. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, let's go to the next slide. I want to just very quickly show <clears throat> conservative copying from Exodus 15. Now, this isn't, the, uh, this isn't going back to the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is going back to one of those texts we looked at earlier, uh, the Ashkar Gilson, dated to about the 7th century A.D., and I want to compare its text with the Leningrad Codex of 1008 A.D., okay? So uh, we're going to describe it, describe the layout, and I'm going to make a few comments about it. Okay. So what we have here is a fragment of a scroll, actually. This, is not a, this, this, this piece here came from a Torah scroll, not a codex, okay? All right. So, so this is a scroll. I want you to notice just a few things about this, because uh, it's going to be tough probably to go back and forth. So you're going to have to get this firmly in your mind. But can you see all the way to the right of this how narrow the columns are? With me? Okay. And uh, what you're looking at in that, say, that, that column right next to the fat one, okay, to the left, that, that immediate column to the right is Exodus 14. It's the Exodus out of Egypt. Okay, that's what you're looking at. In fact, uh, you're looking all the way down the bottom of that column to all of the armies of Pharaoh, right, headed into the sea. Okay, remember that point? The entire force of Pharaoh heading, heading into the sea is at the bottom of that column to the right. <clears throat> when you shift over to the next column, the, the wider column, can everybody see, and we'll have a zoom up here in a minute, but can you see the five lines at the top? There are five lines at the top, and they are so evenly spaced, okay? It looks like a, rect a perfect rectangle. Then there is quite a prominent space between those five lines and then that really, really elaborate layout where you have uh, text, then a space, text, then a space, maybe followed by some text, okay, on down. That, what you're looking at there is the very end of Exodus 14, and then Moses' song by the sea, okay, is, is actually copied in a really elaborate uh, way. You have that one in your mind? This is from the 7th century A.D., Okay, let's turn to the next slide. Okay, this is the Leningrad Codex, and uh, the column all the way to the left, so again, this is 
three, four hundred years after the one we were just looking at. The column all the way to the left uh, ends with that same exact expression about all of the armies of Pharaoh heading into the sea. And then, on the very next page of the Leningrad Codex, what you have are the five lines, again, with the space, and then does everybody see the elaborate layout of Exodus 15? The, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> um, uh, the, the poetic layout for Moses' song. Now, what I can't show, well, I can. Let's go to the next slide. Okay. We're going to focus in now. We're looking at the very top of each of those now, those special five lines, the space, and the very beginning of the elaborate layout. What I want you to see, I <laughs> almost need like a stick, <laughs> um, is that in the example up above, what you have are very even lines. And the example down below can everybody see the dots in some, some of these? There's actual space savers between each word, especially at the end here. Because the scribe of the 1008 manuscript is trying to make sure that his line ends with the exact right word. Okay? Do you see that? It's like he's copying the text up above, though probably not really, but, but a copy of that one, you see. Uh, he is copying. But the Leningrad... The Leningrad, uh, not, not only the wording, but the spacing, is exactly the same as the text up above from the 7th, 8th century AD. And then they have the same exact layout of the Song by the Sea. It's fascinating that the Leningrad Codex's text uh, also went to a much wider layout, too, right where this Torah scrolls layout went to a wider layout, right? So uh, let's go to the next slide. Here's what I think we can draw from this. The amount of correspondence between the Ashkar Gilson and the Leningrad Codex is remarkable. If the manuscripts are separated by 400 years, that's about the time gap between the pilgrims and us. If it's more like 300 years, that's still about the time gap between the French and Indian War and us. The point is that to have only a handful of spelling differences between texts over this great span of time without the help of the printing press is truly remarkable. Okay. So um, that's just kind of a quick example. Uh, of a Middle Ages text to the, to the later medieval period text, but exact copying. Let's go to the next slide. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, it could be, but I'm going to get to that one right now. Yeah, it could be. My point there is... Um, to have a text separated by 400 years with the exact same spelling, exact same layout of the manuscript is no small feat, this side of the printing press. Yeah, that's all. Good question. That's a good question. <clears throat> Great care, right? Take it in the transmitting of the text. Yeah. We're headed there right now. <laughs> Notice I've adjusted the dates a little bit for our next example. We're going to look at Psalm 82. 
We're going to go back to that Masada Psalm scroll dated to around 25 BC, and we're going to compare it to the other major medieval manuscript known as the Aleppo Codex dated to around 925. Again, let me just say from the outset, hardly any spelling or other copyist mistakes between the Masada Psalm scroll and the Aleppo Codex, okay? <clears throat> Again, all scholars think Masada Psalm scroll is, is the pristine forerunner of the Masoretic text, okay? This is not just John Mead up here saying that. I can quote guys like Emmanuel Tove and others who think the same thing, okay? So, so this is just me, or, or this is just kind of the discipline showing that, uh, that the pristine example of the Masada Psalm scroll anticipates the Aleppo by now, what, some 1,000 years, okay? We're going to look at the layout and poetic line divisions and then draw some summary conclusions. So, again, looking at that same text, I've just now marked off what Psalm 82 is on that. Let's go to the next slide. There's the Aleppo Codex. There's Psalm 82 again. And now we put them in relationship to each other. With Psalm 82 in the, in the Masada Psalm scroll, does everybody see the space between the, the lines? Can everybody see that? I don't know if you can, can everybody? So, so what I've got here is there's text. Remember, everything is right to left here. So you've got text uh, starting in the right, and then it hits a space. And then there's more text that finishes like verse 1 of our Bibles. Then you go to the next line, text, space, with finishing verse 2. Text, space, okay, and on down. Poetry is set up with A and B lines, Okay. And the Masada Psalm Scroll from 25 BC is actually indicating A and B lines, all right, uh, here in this picture. What I want you to see is that, in, again, the, the wording of these two manuscripts uh, uh, is identical, not just on this psalm, but elsewhere, identical. But here, even on the layout, does everybody see the spaces now in the, in the image to the top left? Now, the funny thing is, is that those spaces are not actually mirror, mirroring the earlier text, okay? They actually don't match the, the spaces in the top left. What it does show me is that the later Masoretes have some memory of this layout, okay? But it's probably not uh, exact. But what is exact, and what I'm trying to show with the arrows, is that the Masoretic accents, so on the top line, I, I circle these cantillation marks or, or, or accents, and then I show where the end of that text is in the Masada Psalm scroll. The bottom line is that the actual reading of the text is the same from 25 BC to 925 AD. Everywhere the Masada Psalm scroll has a space, the Masoretes have preserved the pause or the break in the reading with their tradition of accents. Um, that's fascinating because one of the things I've thought about as, as I put this together, it's like Jesus and the apostles, right, would be reading this text with the same breaks and the same pauses, you see, as the text from 925 preserves. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, <clears throat> yes, and if we had time, we would go into this one uh, a bit more. You, it, this same line uh, lengths and spaces actually uh, exhibits itself uh, more than not in 
the Greek translation of these things uh, represented in Codex Sinaiticus. Let's go to the next slide. Okay. So, this is about the, as good as the humor gets right here. So, <laughs> although I don't know, that's why I brought Gurry along. So, <laughs> um, so what we've got here, I want to switch gears to, to what we're describing as free copying now, okay? Places where the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, and other sources do not agree with the Masoretic text that our Bibles are printed on, okay? And uh, we're going to ask a simple question. How tall is or was Goliath? In my Sunday school classes, he was always pictured like on the left. But uh, what is Shaq, about seven foot? Seven, six. Yeah, so he would be he, he would be head and shoulders above some versions of Goliath, as we'll see here in a minute. Let's go to the next slide. You see, we have a textual problem here, okay? In 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. You see, he's either, Goliath is either six cubits and a span, which puts him at about nine foot nine, okay? Or... He is four cubits and a span, which puts him at about 6'9". And what I'm trying to show you is that this is not scholarly guessing. On the left, there is all the evidence there that reads he was six cubits and a span tall. Everybody see that? The Masoretic text manuscripts, Symmachus and the rest of those Jewish Greek revisers, the Targum, the Aramaic Targum, Jonathan has him at six cubits. The Syriac Peshitta and the Latin Vulgate all have the number six. But over on the right side, there is actually a Dead Sea Scroll, 4Q Samuel A, that has Goliath at four cubits and a span. The Septuagint, the LXX, has him at four cubits and a span. And when Josephus, the later Jewish historian, tells the story of David and Goliath, he reports Goliath at four cubits high, you see, not, not six. Let's go to the next slide. So, so we have a choice here on this, and uh, two different explanations. Number one, we could argue that there's an unintentional scribal error. Perhaps the scribe copying verse 4, that is the four cubits, wrote six cubits, uh, anticipating the number 600 in the, in the weight of Goliath's spear in verse 7. I don't know if you can kind of see the Hebrew characters there. You could get uh, Shesh Amoth uh, looking quite like Shesh Maoth, you see. Um, <clears throat> So, so that would be one answer, but again, not everyone's convinced by this because the scribe's eye may not have skipped that far down the page. That's the difference between verse 4 and verse 7. That's a little bit of a leap. This leads a lot of scholars to the options on the right. You have intentional scribal exegesis here. And you can think about a scribe moving from four to six, that is changing an original text of four cubits high to six cubits high, 
would make David's victory more impressive. But these same scholars work it, work it the other way too. You could move from an original six cubits high to four because that would make good sense since perhaps it's a more realistic uh, height and it would provide a critique of Saul who was head and shoulders above his people in chapter 9, verse 2. In other words, if, if Goliath is only four cubits high, Saul and Goliath could actually be around the same height. And that actually highlights Saul's own cowardice in the narrative if he's still not willing to go out and fight Goliath. In the actual narrative, Saul is never quite afraid of Goliath's physical attributes. He's afraid of his training. He is a fighter from birth, basically, okay, is the way the text describes him. And Saul is terrified of Goliath's skill on the battlefield, not so much his physical attributes or even his armor, because Saul's own armor is described quite similarly to Goliath's. So, so you see, right, we, there, there are a couple of different options. We're not going to solve this today. But if it's the option on the right, then what we have are a few scribes that, uh, that were doing what we might call free copying uh, from either 4 to 6 or 6 to 4. But, uh, but that's a tough one to solve here. I'm thankful that the ESV translation has him at six cubits, but notes the four cubits in the bottom. You know why I like that? So that way, um, we're not covering anything up, are we? That's a problem in the text. Six and four, and you, as you can see, it does change how we're going to read this story a little bit. And the ESV puts the, the, the variant in the bottom. Okay? No conspiracy, but there is a textual problem, and we can see that there might be good exegetical reasons for, for either. Let's go to the next slide. This is a bit of a different example, but from the same story. <clears throat> what I'm trying to show here is um, major differences now between the Masoretic text on the left and the Greek Septuagint version on the right. Both of these texts agree on verses 1 to 11 with minor differences like we saw with just, just in the previous example. But if you look at my, what I'm trying to show here, the, the MT in our Bibles have verses 12 to 31 represented. The Septuagint doesn't have all those verses. Yeah. Then it continues on. Both versions have verses 32 to 40. Only the Hebrew has verse 41. Septuagint doesn't. Both have verses 42 to 49. But then, uh, oh, and then 50 is in the MT, but not in the Greek Septuagint. There's another major one that I couldn't fit on the slide uh, at the beginning of 18. So, so here, right, this is clearly a different addition of the story. Let's go to the next slide. Question is, how did this happen? Did the text grow, which would make that Greek version the older version, or shrink, 
which would then mean the, the longer MT version is older, and the Septuagint uh, is uh, reporting a smaller or a shorter text of the more lo original, longer text. What I want to suggest is that we're, we're both editions copied side by side, the shorter as a popular version of the longer. That verses 12 to 31 that's omitted is another biographical introduction to David, which was made earlier in chapter 17, you see. So perhaps some Hebrew scribe uh, said, hey, we've already covered this ground. Let's just, let's leave that out. Okay. We've already covered that ground. So we're not missing anything about David's background here. But if, if we don't copy verses 12 to 31. But the Septuagint translator got a hold of that copy, you see and translated now the shorter Hebrew text. Okay. Now, most scholars would say the version in our Bibles is the product of the text growing over time. But I will say that the evidence for the longer version does go back all the way to 4Q Samuel A, that Dead Sea Scroll, which is dated to the first century BC. That is, if that text was growing, it couldn't have grown much past the first century BC. It seems plausible to me that both the conservative and the free versions were copied side by side and known from late Second Temple times. But a decision on the more original text here is difficult. Okay? Let's go to the final slide. Or maybe second to last. What about the non aligned texts? So again, we started here. These are the texts that, so, to some, show that uh, the text of the Old Testament is entirely fluid, and there is no standard text. But here I want to show that good research is being done that, uh, on these texts to show that they are not quite as unaligned as Emmanuel Tove has presumed. Anthony Ferguson uh, just completed a doctoral dissertation at Southern Seminary analyzing all of Tobes' evidence, that all 55 of those texts. Here's what he argued. Contrary to Emmanuel Tobes' analysis that 55 texts from Qumran are exclusively identified as textually non-aligned, a more cautious analysis of each text demonstrates that once the few ambiguous texts are excluded from the category, the remaining texts can reasonably be explained as belonging to the Masoretic tradition. That is... These texts are not so different from the MT, or at least the Septuagint. They belong to the same tradition that produced MT, even if they contain unique readings and only sporadic agreements with known texts. In other words, as analysis on this major problem continues, we may find, as some suspect, that Tove's categorization was too strict. And really, these texts are examples of freer copying of the Proto-MT after all. Last slide. So our English Old Testament is based mainly on the MT. And this text tradition is a rugged and ancient one. As with all texts, though, it contains errors, which our other textual witnesses help to correct. The so-called unaligned texts are being examined with more scrutiny today. The foundation is too uncertain to argue for textual fluidity. After all, most of our texts agree, and it's in the nature of textual criticism to focus 
on the relative few differences. I would conclude that although there are major variants that continually require analysis and may continue to change the base text of translation, the evidence shows that we can trust our Bibles. Thank you.